This is Principles in Practice, a Shape of Advice podcast brought to you by Professional Planner and BlackRock. My name is Tan Sharp and I'm the editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational style exploration of the different elements of practice management for advisors, drawing on the knowledge and experience of people that contribute to the delivery of advice to Australian consumers. Feel free to visit professionalplanner.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Principles in Practice podcast. I'm Tan Sharp, the editor of Professional Planner. Today's pod is all about switching the managed accounts tap on and with managed account flows topping 100 billion recently, there's every likelihood that for broad-based investment advisors, the transition to managed accounts for at least a portion of their books, if it hasn't already happened, is inevitable. Managed accounts present a clear value proposition for most advice practices with the agility of its operations, meaning trades can happen across the board in an instant with approvals coming after the event, hence the discretionary tag. So what's it like for a firm going from RAP platforms to managed account platforms? What are the challenges, dangers, and opportunities? Also, what's the product landscape like? How do big producers like BlackRock put model portfolios together, and to what level does consultancy with advisors come into play? With that, I want to bring my guests into the picture. Coming in from Queensland, we have Hugh Robertson, Principal Advisor at Centaur Financial Services with us, and a fellow Sydney cider, Eleanor Meniti, who is Head of Client Product Strategy and Consultant Relations at BlackRock. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Tan. Great to be here. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for joining me. I want to start with you, Eleanor. How has the emergence of managed account solutions across the spectrum changed the investment advice ecosystem for advisors? Look, we see managed accounts or model portfolios, as I'll also call them, as just the next iteration or the next generation of portfolio construction that helps solve for key challenges that advisors face, particularly around efficiency. The adoption of models, as you touched on, Tan, you know, allows focus advisors to focus on other priorities outside of managing investments, such as offering more value-adding services to their existing client base, or even seeking new clients, all of which increase the health of an advice business. The efficiency offered to advisors through platforms include things like not just in the investment side, but automatic rebalancing, client look through to the underlying holdings um, and the risks associated with those holdings as well as the support infrastructure that really matters to clients like client reporting and collateral. So it really is an evolution across the investment landscape, not just on the investment side. And as you touched on just then, it's really been proven in the numbers. I mean, how much, how many advisors are really taking up the managed account journey? Uh, the sector's assets under management at the end of 2021 topped $131 billion, um, and asset growth is approaching 40% per annum. And on the advice business side, it's estimated now that more than 15 hours a week are being saved within advice firms by adopting managed accounts. So, you know, really ultimately we see managed accounts as solving the same investment problems that have been faced by clients for a long time now, but in a much more efficient way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you you really equate managed accounts with the, the model portfolios, which are the engines of, of managed accounts there. And uh, and the, the number there for 15 hours per week saved. Uh, Hugh, I imagine that's that's pretty much one one working day for you up at uh, up at Centaur, how has how has managed accounts and their evolution changed your business, mate? I think listening to Eleanor is absolutely the poster message for what you're trying to achieve with when you when you undertake that journey. For for us, it has been a massive game changer, and it I suppose traditionally our, our time was spent doing ROA. So if we want to change 
200, 300, 400 clients from investment A to investment B, that was a record of advice document. So we're spending all our time doing, to some extent, non-valuable work at a, at a significant level. Whereas with the managed accounts, now we spend our time really analysing, is investment A better than investment B? How's that going to fit? So our time's been spent in much better areas to make more strategic decisions. So that's been a real game changer for us. And it's really held us to account a lot more. I think traditionally, if you're ever critical of some advisors might be that, you know, they they pick the best performing fund from the previous year or something like that. This has given us a bit more accountability, a bit more responsibility. So the decisions are greater than they might have been. I know when we've looked at purchasing businesses before, it was kind of a scattergram of investment options. So there's no way that they could all be best in show. And now when you have managed accounts, you can really spend that time making sure that you're articulating your value proposition in terms of the investment side of things to Eleanor's point as well. It's you've, we've got a greater value proposition than just investments, but that's still a very important component of what we do and how our clients judge us. Mm. So it's what it's given us is the time and efficiency to make the bigger decisions. Um, the cost side of things, you know, there's the ability to then negotiate discounts because you've got greater scale. Uh, there's the ability to really articulate a value proposition on the investments for our purposes. We do quarterly rebalancing and that's proven during COVID and things like that to be a massive game changer and value add to clients. Because if you go back to March, 2020, we can all remember that market's gone down significantly. Our protocol is that we would now rebalance uh, back to the strategic asset allocation. Yep. So we then were able to buy back shares on a discount which really push returns forward for the coming, you know, quarters. And then every year, every quarter, every month, you know, we're reviewing that to ensure that we're still comfortable with it. Uh, so we're able to replace managers at a wholesale level. Uh, we're able to make sure we can do things that don't feel right at the time, but we know behavioural finance-wise clients won't want to buy stocks or funds when they're low. Uh, but we know by having a purpose-driven program that we can take advantage of that in the long term, that always, you know, generates a, an alpha. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, March 2020 period would, would really provide an interesting case study for the benefits of managed accounts. Um, you touched on the investment side and what you can do there and focusing on the right things. I want to get back to investments later, but I might just sort of get you to explain, you know, how this all came about, Hugh, and, and the genesis of managed accounts, because looking through the lens of, of Centaur Financial Services, I'm asking this because you know, this series is on practice management and that transfer from legacy wrap platforms to model portfolios and, and managed account-enabled investment platforms is a huge undertaking that, that so many advisors are considering now if they haven't already done it. So at what point did you decide that you needed to evolve your offering and, and what happened from there? Great question. I think the majority of us advisors, we really want to value add to clients' lives and I feel even when you're talking about people who are leaving big licenses and things like that, it's that we want to have that belief that we're really helping people. And I, I, the majority of advice I know, I would 100% say we just want to help. And I think we could all see the efficiency gains in terms of that from a, from a business perspective to say, well, hang on, if I didn't need to do an ROA. Um, or we had a situation where there was a fund that was one of the top rated funds. It had their management team left overnight. Uh, came back in, the fund manager 
business said, look, we think it'll be okay. Uh, you know, we'll replace these guys. And, and they were great managers of money. And we, we knew them, we were comfortable with them. We weren't comfortable with that product without those managers. So we were able to, you know, we found out that morning, by that afternoon, we were able to switch out of, you know, a significant amount of money out of that fund into one that we effectively had on the bench. So that was where my my belief in us being able to do that without an ROA, record of advice document, uh, was certainly in the client's best interest and to put their money somewhere where we could really see it. Uh, we could see that the stock overlap within the existing uh, fund to the recommended fund, we could understand what the tax consequences would be. So it really gave us great insight. And we don't we don't want to be a portfolio manager. We don't want to, mm. we certainly think that we we don't have that skill set in financial advice land. But it really gave us a way to steward our clients' money in a way that we thought was responsible. So that was where the can the belief was that one day we would be able to do something like that. All of us that have been in the industry a little bit longer will remember the GFC and remembering that it was you know, 20% return, 20% return, 20%. You were trying to talk to clients about rebalancing and they didn't want to. Uh, I feel the clients are a lot smarter nowadays. I think they're, they're used to volatility a lot more, but the ability for us to take some of the human behavioral elements out of it by having systematic rebalancing and things like that was, was just something that we fundamentally, you know, I fundamentally believe would add value. And to date, it always has even, you know, this quarter, you know, shares down. So we bought brought back and doesn't always feel comfortable, but in hindsight, it's easy to connect the dots. How hard was it from an operational point of view when you're, when you're making that transfer? I remember in, in, in my old advice mob, it was, it was a big project. And obviously, you need to sort of open all the new accounts, you need to do all the transfers, all the in-specie transfers, contact every client and sit down and explain it to them. But what about on the, um, you know, the system setup? You, you revamp your APL and you look at the model portfolios out there. Without going into specific investments, Hugh, did the move to managed accounts necessitate a complete rethink of your APL suite? I mean, you, you guys obviously would have had to move to a, a model solution. Yeah, it was a horrible time. Uh, very time intensive, uh, very, you know, the, the team weren't really happy with us. Uh, with all the extra work because, yeah, in many instances, you're redoing client data forms, risk profiles, statement of advices. You're having a new conversation with clients. Mm. Uh, the conversation with clients wasn't really difficult because in many instances, the product was cheaper, uh, but there was embedded issues around Centrelink, around capital gains tax that sure. you had to navigate. So some clients you can't bring across. Um, in terms of then moving on to the APL, it really made you have a rethink because there was a lot of, you know, product that you probably wouldn't bring across into the new world. So that then becomes a legacy product in yours. So your reporting and your monitoring of that is, is to some extent, a little bit more problematic because what you want to, it's almost like, you know, the old rules around diversification, like, you know, just have a smaller basket, but watch it better. Um, you don't need to have this. We And we, even within our license, we're not a license for 100 firms, so we don't have to cater to that. We wanted a small co-op kind of license that was like-minded. So, hey, let's have, you know, all the different styles covered, a couple of different managers in each. Um, so that way we've got everything covered. We've got our guys who we call sort of in the game and on the bench. Mm -hmm. uh, from that perspective, we've got, I've got fund manager A, but I know if you've had like in the media, you know, fund managers have left their businesses. You've Indeed. got 
Yeah, uh, under performance. So on that, we've got to have someone ready to replace them. Uh, and then the, the good thing about managed accounts for anyone that isn't on that journey is because you can see the underlying investments, it's very easy to then control your, oh, it's, it's easier to control your tax outcomes. It's not like the old unit trust when you sell 100% of that, you know, portfolio, even though 50% of the stock is the same, and then you buy back 100%. You just sell the difference. So there's some stuff there that we we really didn't know it as well as, and Eleanor can talk more to that, but we didn't understand that just how efficient it was uh, when we undertook it. So for us, we, we were still learning. Our whole industry is still evolving. We always will. Um, but it was great to start to really see the benefits in in real in real life time. So. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's a good segue actually to Eleanor. Eleanor, you mentioned before the the, the total um, managed account assets globally. Now it's I know it's well over a hundred billion. What was that total figure? One hundred thirty-one bill. One hundred thirty-one bill. So a fair chunk of change there. This has been obviously happening for 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 quite a while now. It's been a um, it's really been a ten-year journey, but but I'd, I'd probably say a six to seven-year ascendancy for managed accounts with with maybe managed discretionary accounts and 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 separately managed accounts taking precedence at different times. How has the market evolved in terms of solutions over that time? I think you would have a really good view on this. Are solutions becoming more customised and, and bespoke or are there sort of trends and thematics that, that are coming out? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, with BlackRock, was an early adopter of managed accounts. We launched our flagship range in 2015. So we've really been there to ride the wave, so to speak, of the managed accounts journey over that time. And keeping to the theme that managed accounts are really solving the same challenges, but just in a new way. You know, really the asset classes available to invest in a managed account haven't haven't changed dramatically. You still have equities, you still have bonds, maybe some alternatives and and REITs. Um, And nor have the asset allocations underpinning portfolios changed dramatically. I mean, most clients, you know, you still have a balanced portfolio or a high growth portfolio. That's largely unchanged, but it's absolutely undeniable that managed accounts are changing the industry. So often when I think of managed accounts in this context, I think of the the phrase used in strategy, uh, thinking a lot of disruptive innovation. And I think of that phrase um, as the journey that managed accounts have been on for the past decade or or longer even um, absolutely reflects the journey of most genuinely innovative products that you see in any industry, not just advice and and not just asset management. Um, And I mean mean that in a couple of ways. So firstly, managed accounts, as as Hugh has touched on, um, you know, really well before, um, they really provide better performance to the advice industry um, through enabling efficiency. And I don't mean just performance in terms of investment performance, I mean, in terms of performance, um, in terms of performance of an advice business itself. Um, and secondly, and this is probably focusing more on SMAs, um, as they are the largest and the fastest growing component of the managed account world, um, you know, they initially generated better performance, uh, for want of a better term, by integrating solutions. So, that it, you know, you'd have a limited range of off-the-shelf product or perhaps a group or a consultant was translating a set of paper portfolios into a managed account structure and just selling those. So it was quite, um, you know, non-bespoke and non-customised. However, as the industry has matured and as particularly as the technology and the infrastructure supporting the industry has matured, we're absolutely seeing more customization coming into the structure, which we really see as a great thing for advisors and a great thing for clients because, it means that managed accounts can be more tailored to meet individual needs, which is what we're really here to do at the end of the day. Um, that maturity in the model also allows the industry to meet client-driven trends or bottom-up trends, like ESG is a really good example of that. Um, and the move towards building portfolios, say, around themes, um, rather around just asset classes, as you, mm. as you just mentioned, Tan. 
And this is really important because, you know, I think we can all agree that ESG means different things to different people. There's no standard one approach that, that oh, every yes. client is going to agree to. Um, and we could have a whole different podcast about that, I think. Um, and for managers can play in very different ways and, and that can be defined very differently. So if we could really only support that integrated model and that off-the-shelf model, we couldn't meet client needs nearly as well as we can now. Um, at BlackRock, you know, we absolutely recognise this ourselves and we recently launched our own range of ESG models as we expect the interest in ESG to continue and grow. Mm. But we absolutely expect there to be more customization down the track to meet client needs. But and it is absolutely a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is proudly sponsored by BlackRock. My name is Chantal Giles and I'm Head of Wealth for BlackRock Australia. BlackRock is a global investment manager that has served the Australian market for over three decades with a commitment to helping more people plan for their financial future. As a long-standing partner to financial advisors, BlackRock delivers tailored holistic investment solutions, thought leadership, and investment technology to help clients build resilient portfolios. To learn how we can help you and your clients, please visit the BlackRock Australia website. That, that, that range of ESG model portfolios, was that done in consultancy with, with advisors? Do you actually get out there on a granular level and, and, and speak to advisors about what they're looking from in there to put in their sleeves? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, we absolutely did talk to our clients about how they thought about ESG. Um, the interesting thing was is that once you recognise that you can't solve every ESG need with one set of models and it is, there is a need for customization, particularly at, from an advisor perspective, it more than focuses on, well, what need are you trying to solve with these particular models? And, and you go down that path. So if it's, say, like a low-cost exposure or a low-cost diversified exposure, that may push you towards products like an ETF models, which is how, I, how our models have been put together. But if you're thinking about, like, impact investing or green thematic investing or net zero, that may push you in a different direction. So it really comes down to defining what the client need is and then building a portfolio around that. Yeah, interesting. Just on that, Hugh, are you are you seeing a lot of interest in in those kind of uh, themed um, portfolios, especially yes. around ESG? Yes, yeah, it's it's a conversation that didn't used to be there. Uh, so that's sort of how we start when clients we might introduce it to clients, and that's part of our education process. But it has been interesting as people are saying, actually, we're interested in this, or we've heard about this company doing that, or we've heard about. So client awareness is higher than it used to be. Mm. Uh, to Eleanor's point, the definition of it uh, is, you know, that's where it's the advisor's role to educate the client on, you know, what is, you know, people will know the term greenwashing, people will know, you know, what's ESG versus impact investing, what's that range. And um, there's some good information that's out there. It's just about finding that and and then really understanding and taking an undertaking on, wh- on where you want to be with that. Yeah. Um, so even I know we've developed a, a sustainable growth model, you know, within our within our license because there's a client need for it. Um, but I think that yeah, it's it's certainly growing in. Yeah, I'm, I'm wary of turning this into an ESG podcast. But I think uh, the only reason I, I sort of harp on that a little bit is because it's it's a good demonstration of what managed accounts can do because as an advice firm you don't need to go out and do a, a, a full recon on every investment in terms of its ESG properties, whereas you could just get a model portfolio that caters to those needs and, uh, again, it would take a lot of the research um, off your shoulders. Yeah, and I think in terms of when you start talking about, you know, that's on the advice process side and you move to, I suppose, the client process side is a lot of time it's just assumed knowledge from them. So they're assuming that we've done the work, whether it be a, a, 
balanced portfolio, growth portfolio, conservative portfolio, you know, where, whether it's a sustainable. So we, in terms of managed accounts, I suppose that's a lot of times clients come in and there's always that trust equation that we've got to really be able to figure out and help clients. And I think from that perspective, it's when you engage with a client about talking about their goals and their values and what's important to them, and that's that's where they will then typically go with your solution. Yeah. But if you're coming in going, hey, I've got a managed account, it's great, it's returned this much this quarter, good luck. In in my in my mind, you're that's old hat and you're not going to be in the industry for you know, our industry is evolving at a rate that's about helping clients hit their goals, which is amazing. If you do that and they trust you and you enable that, then they will want to go with your solution typically, whatever it is, whether it was managed funds, whether it was model portfolios. Uh, that's the trust part of, you know, where advisors sit. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that um, that sort of uh, that equation there on returns has has kind of been marginalised in terms of importance. I think over you know since back back to when I was in advice, I'm interested in that that client process and that the trust equation that you you mentioned there, Hugh, and how you pitch managed accounts to clients. Um, the discretionary part can be tricky because of, the, of that measure of trust involved, but it's also the biggest sell in terms of being able to sort of move quickly in line with the market movements, right? So how, how do you sort of um, couch it in, in the right terms to clients? Really interesting because I think advisors have got to be very careful to not want to go down the stockbroker path of, hey, here's this idea, here's this idea. Uh, and that, that's not not that's not to be mean or insensitive to stockbrokers. Uh, but from, from our perspective, it is about a, a client education process on, we've talked about your goals, we've talked about the plan, we've talked about the strategy. Now, here's how we can build a bespoke portfolio for you. That's, that is unique compared to a lot of our competitors uh, in terms of how we can channel income and cash to you know fund future things, how we can rebalance the different styles that we select our effectively our house view. And if clients agree with that, then they will go into the standard model and say, all right, well, we, yep, that's fine. Most of the time it's not too difficult. We certainly don't pitch ourselves as investment gurus, but there's the conversation around the kind of stocks that we like in the portfolio, the kind of managers we like to have, the trust that we have in the portfolio managers. So for me, that's if a portfolio manager gives me an answer, of, oh, yeah, it'll be right or something like that. That's not an appropriate answer to us. So clients are trusting that we're building a, a portfolio for them. And I suppose where managed accounts are good, and Eleanor touched on it before, was that if someone does want something that's customizable, say they had a filter and they didn't want uh, gaming stocks or something in their portfolio, but our managers had them, I could exclude that or replace that. So yes. substitute that. So that, that's some great... That's some great tech, you know, where you kind of go, this is really cool. You can have something that actually, you know, you're, you're comfortable with and they've bought, they've bought into the process as well then. So for that, once a client logs in and sees their stocks and is comfortable, learns a bit about the volatility, look at the last three months, the volatility the clients have had, and our clients have been great about it because they get it. We've said, look, you know, the growth rotation, interest rates, war in Ukraine and inflation, and, and they – it's really good learning because they're seeing everything because you can open up the hood. So I think there's that level of transparency leads to understanding. They still don't love it when it's down to 10%, but yeah, of they course, guess it. Of course, that, that transpar- transparency is, has become a huge factor. I think the um, the investment platforms have been quite nimble. I think early on they realised that they needed 
they needed not only that transparency, but as you mentioned, that sort of agility where you can sort of just just click on an investment and say, all right, well, that's that's excluded from this rebalancing for, for now. All those kind of little things actually matter and, and I think clients see that as well. Just quickly, do, do they get it straight away or is it something that an idea that they need to sort of absorb and then comprehend over time when you're speaking to them? What would the stats be on financial literacy? I, I don't think many clients understand what, what what we do, what an industry fund does, what a I, I that's at a large scale. I, I think that a lot of them aren't interested. Uh, you look at super and the majority of people, you know, are coming in. You know, there's an event that drives them to come in and see us, whether it be a few years from retirement or their their friends told them something. Um, there, you know, a lot of times it's event driven to come and see a financial advisor, mm. and you'll see them and say, "Oh, what's your super strategy?" And they will say, "I don't know." So, I think we are getting people are getting a lot smarter in terms of you know the their financial journey and want to take more interest in it. But in terms of understanding, I would still say it's very low, and there isn't really a great amount of education available because if you want to talk about modern portfolio theory and efficient frontier curves. I think, you know, even if I want to talk to my wife about it, she starts her eyes glaze over. So <laughs> I don't know it's the most interesting or sexy topic that we discuss. Um, well, let's, but, not, but, let's not bring modern portfolio theory into the equation because I'm sure Eleanor could riff on that for um, for, for many hours. But, <laughs> well, I'm um, happy not to. <laughs> yes. Eleanor, while I've got you, I'm interested in what you're hearing from advisors because you would have a, a – I guess you'd say a really pure advice lens, um, you know, advice groups are, and I guess more often licensees would be approaching BlackRock and saying, here are my needs, you know, what solutions are available. Can you pull the thread on on those needs a little bit, especially from sort of from the licensee angle? I, th- I think that would be quite interesting um, when it comes to putting APLs together, what licensees are saying on more of a broader basis. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think to my previous comments, look, I don't think client needs are necessarily changing fundamentally. They still have financial goals that they want to meet. And, and as you mentioned, it's often something in their lives that's triggering them the, to go on the path to seek advice. They may be more sensitive to ESG issues perhaps now than they may have been, but it's really all about achieving those financial goals at an acceptable level of risk. We have aimed to, uh, to, to address those needs via cost-efficient managed accounts and providing building block products to external model builders to help more and more people experience financial wellbeing. But I do want to pick up on the point that you made about um, advisors approaching BlackRock and the conversations that we've had on, on, on solutions because a really interesting observation, you know, that I've made since I joined BlackRock is how advisors in different markets around the world have addressed the need to be more efficient in their businesses due to regulatory change, increasing costs, some combination of all of that. Um, and that managed accounts have frequently been the answer, um, but the paths to get there have been a little bit different in, in different jurisdictions. It's a really fascinating topic for me, and I could talk a lot about it, but for now I'll, um, I'll focus on the main difference I've seen in Australia compared to, say, the UK and the US, and that really is the role of the consultants in the managed account world and the really important gatekeeping role that they play. So we in Australia have a very well-established peer group of consultants in the market, uh, many of whom were born out of research houses and who provided portfolio construction services to advisor groups who are already purchasing fund research. So it was very much a, a complementary service. This allowed those consultants to build really strong relationships with those advice groups over many years um, and really build that trust as independent sources of advice. So that when the managed account structure came along and started to become popular, um, these consultants were really able to translate that trust and those relationships into either managing 
their, their client's managed account price directly or as a consultant into, into bespoke models. You know, so now it's, and we're really seeing that now it's expected by advice groups, but moreover by platforms and other gatekeepers who have a governance role to play with managed accounts that they, that managed accounts are meant to have some kind of independent consultant oversight on top of them. Mm. And we've seen a number of new consultants come into the market, um, really meeting that, that demand for that consult, that level of consulting advice. The really interesting contrast is in the markets like the US, they've never really had that tradition of consultants. And so that when advisors were looking for, portfolio construction help, it actually wasn't that unusual to approach an asset manager directly. Um, and those asset managers have therefore been able to translate those relationships into strong managed account franchises um, as managed accounts have, have taken off. So it's quite interesting that managed account businesses look quite different um, overseas to BlackRock's business in Australia. But ultimately, we're still absolutely focused on building best solutions for clients wherever in the world they are and building to how you know licensees expect to interact with asset managers around the world. Yeah, it's really interesting that that point there about bringing in the consultants and having that external lens as well. And um, I, I note that uh, you know, Matt Lawler, who runs AMP's advice department, recently uh, spoke up and, and we wrote a story on Professional Town about the idea that that you should have a proposed sort of a, you should propose a benchmark for managed account performance, you know, similar to APRA's uh, Your Future, Your Super Performance Benchmark for Super Funds. Um, Hugh, what do you think? Is that a sort of a logical next step for advice? And I say that, you know, with the view also that ASIC has had a, 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 a real concerted review of managed accounts over the last sort of three or four years, which got stalled because of the pandemic. Um, but my understanding is they're picking it up again. So do you think that there's going to be a lot of changes from a regulatory sense coming for, for managed accounts? I don't think anyone's opposed to it hmm. uh, because you... You do always worry, you know, from my perspective, I think advisors can add a lot of value in doing, you know, the SAA part of our portfolio management and selecting good managers. But if you do start to get a lot of tactical tilts on clients' money, that can be problematic. Now, I've seen some some stuff that sort of raised a couple of eyebrows from some other, you know, SMAs that I've looked at and went, okay, that's that's probably a little bit, you know, more risky than than a client would have anticipated. So there, you know, hasn't been that uh, gatekeeper in terms of what they have done. Um, from our perspective, you know, when we want to change anything with our model, we actually go through the platform. So we okay it through them, which I think provides an element of safety and an element of accountability. Same with the investment consultant. We do lean on our investment consultant in terms of their knowledge, experience, expertise, um, and really to ask the questions that we might not be thinking and say, okay, well, where are we at? Are we missing anything, you know? Is that, just, about- just to interrupt, sorry, Hugh, you, you, you mentioned going to the investment platform to, to make major changes. Yep. Is that, are they functioning as the, the responsible entity in that case? Yep. Okay, that makes sense. So for us, that was always very important. Everything we're trying to do is give clients layers of safety mm. and peace of mind. That's, you know, one of the ultimate tests. So, uh when opportunities have arisen to do it another way, uh, we've always thought about it. But at this point in time, we I think that it's more prudent uh, as we are early in, in this journey to manage it that way. Others will certainly have different views. Uh, but I think accountability and being able to say, hang on, you know, monthly investment committee meetings, uh, we've got, you know, over six, seven years now of our monthly investment committee meeting minutes to see what we've done. We've tracked 
everything, all the changes that we've done. So it's a robust process. So the longer that we go through that, uh, we've added, you know, obviously within our investment options, uh, we've got six and they're all uh, done against a benchmark that we've created uh, in lo- with the platform provider. And they've they've been really great actually in building out something that was uh, of an industry standard. So they were really good there um, in doing that and making sure that we're comfortable that it was a fair comparison. It wasn't something that made it look better than what it could have. Sure. Uh, where traditionally you could have said you could have benchmarked against anything and beaten it. So we, th- we think that transparency is key, honesty is key. Cra- crazy ideas. Um, the, the thing that would, that would be frustrating to us as an industry is with the compliance that we all undergo now, the majority, 95%, I'm certain, are doing the best job they can. And what you don't want is more, you know, onerous guardrails or things that really don't add value to a client or don't protect a client, uh, but just to tick a compliance box. Mm. And that that's where industry would do really well to work with government on what is what could be a, a best practice of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, the hope is that uh, industry can work with the quality of advice review um, that's coming up and any work that ASIC is doing on managed accounts to make sure that those changes are as streamlined as possible. Um, I'm just about to finish up, but I want to get, Eleanor, any views that you have um, for advisors coming into the managed accounts uh, world. And, and as we say, that the headline of this podcast, switching the managed accounts tap on, would you have any... Um, any any tips or any sort of from your perspective, any anything that they should keep in mind? Look, what I think has really come through quite clearly from the conversation today is that model portfolios or managed accounts can have a material positive impact on advice firms and on clients. But the decision to adopt managed accounts really is just the start of the conversation and not the end of it. You still really need to think about why you're adopting managed accounts and what needs they'll solve for your client base. Is it cost management? Is it ESG? Is it income? some other outcome and then you need to really think about the how Um, is it off the shelf model going to work best by allowing you to completely outsource the investment piece um, of your offering or would you like something more bespoke that caters to client needs but may need more insight and and more input from the advice firm at BlackRock you know we've had a real focus on cost efficient model portfolios centered around ETFs but the great thing about managed account market is that it's maturing it's diversifying day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year um, across building blocks, across research and consulting services, across platforms and across technology. So it can increasingly cater to the varying needs of our client base. It really just is about bringing all the pieces of product, governance, investment objectives and client objectives together to deliver better financial futures for all of our clients. Brilliant. Hugh, final words, mate. What's your advice for advisors? Uh Listen to what Eleanor has to say. Uh, but also from the perspective of how are you going to allocate your time? Uh, are you going to be the portfolio guru or are you going to be the financial advisor that guides people to hit their goals? Uh, from my perspective, if I was starting today, I wouldn't start out doing it all myself. I'd start out as the financial advisor and using something that was almost you know off the shelf and then there would be an evolution for me because the, the important role of the advisor is to focus on client goals. Uh, and I never want anyone to forget that. And then, you know, we've grown to a point where we had a client base that was that needed something that it suited us going down and building our own portfolios. Uh, but it was a long journey. It was a lot tougher than we thought. Uh, worthwhile, but fo- focused first on helping clients with the goals and the strategies. 
and then go down the investment path if I was to offer any advice for what it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. And having a good support team, I think the, um, you know, having the, the right power planners and client services people in, in tow is, uh, is a big bonus. That's what that. takes you from good to great. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Your team, you are only as good as your team in this industry. Good There's shout. no one to start. Brilliant. Well, thank you both for, uh, for joining this discussion. It's great to have, you know, uh, to get an experienced cerebral view on what it's like to turn a managed accounts tap on within an advice practice. I thank you both for your time and look forward to speaking again. Great. Thank you, Tom. Bye.